1: And welcome back to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic, presented by BetMGM. I'm Max Boltman, and with me, as always, is Prashant Ayer. We are recording here on Monday, March 22nd, during March Madness, arguably begrudgingly. But we're doing it because Prashant insisted, as someone who goes to the University of North Carolina, March Madness is just not really a priority there.
2: Yeah, I mean, the tournament's effectively over. They've already lost. They're out to Wisconsin. Uh, one of their best players is entering the transfer portal. So might as well go ahead and cancel the whole sport.
1: Well, some of us have our alma mater still in the tournament, and some of us need to wrap this one up by 7 p.m. for a big game. Uh, that, that may all, may or may not also have survivor pool implications for some of us, those of us, hypothetically.
2: Hypothetically speaking, of course.
1: But uh, we've got some Red Wings stuff to get into before we do get to all of that, and the Red Wings' uh, most recent series against the Dallas Stars it happened entirely since the last time we talked to you, so you get a little bit of both worlds here. You get a, a 3-2 win in the Thursday game with a Robbie Fabry hat trick, that's the good. But of course, in that same game, you get a Jonathan Bernier injury. That's the very, very bad. Uh, Thomas Grice comes in and gets the win in relief, but then uh, you, you move into Saturday, and the Red Wings get completely dominated at basically every turn. They lose. I think the final score ends up at 3-0. Um, it was a very, very uneventful game, um, but 3-0 pretty much tells you the story.
2: Yeah, I mean, that that first game, you know, you're know, you obviously very excited with the Fabri hat trick, but then... You know, if you're asking what's the worst possible injury that could happen to this Red Wings team, you know, some of you might vote for Dylan Larkin. It's really Jonathan Bernier and and man, that didn't look good. You know, it looked like he first got run over by his own player and then got maybe run over by one of the Stars players, took two knees to the back of the head. But then apparently it's a it's a knee injury. And so return uh, TBD, I think, you know, Blashell said it's day-to-day because they don't know how this type of injury heals so you know that's absolutely the biggest disaster and then you you finish it up with the second game of that series and uh probably one of the wings worst hockey games of the year offensively speaking they generated absolutely nothing dangerous didn't really test anton hudobin whatsoever and he walks out of detroit with a pretty easy three nothing shutout and and the stars are kind of turning their season around potentially on, on that one there so uh, kind of a frustrating couple of games if you're a Wings fan.
1: Yeah, and, and the the Bernier injury obviously I think is probably the big takeaway. Which you know when when someone gets a hat trick, that's kind of it, it takes something pretty big to uh, unseat it in the spotlight. But but you're right, the Bernier injury qualifies. Um, we don't know the timetable. We do know that it's a soft tissue injury, um, and that sounds like it maybe contributes to the unknown timetable. Just because of what you said, it, it there's not like a hey a, a fractured bone takes X long to heal. Uh, there's different elements to this, and and so I, I think the Bernie injury is, is really uh, the takeaway here because you know not only is he the goalie who's got who's the source of all but what two or three of their wins in the last two seasons I guess it's four now that Grace got one
2: which yeah which we should by the way talk about how Thomas Grace gets that win you know when Bernier leaves the Wings are up two nothing and because of the way the NHL does wins uh, once the Wings gave up two goals. The decision goes to Grice. So yes, that makes four wins since October of tw- or, you know the start of the 2019-2020 uh, season by a goaltender other than Jonathan Bernier. So yeah, absolute disaster to lose him there.
1: Still, only three in which Bernier doesn't play.
2: Yeah, yeah, three in which Bernier does not play.
1: So from that standpoint, it's obviously massive. But as uh, as as my athletic coworker Sean Gentilly. Uh, tweeted, oh, no, are they not going to make the playoffs now? And I tweeted that it's a five-alarm fire. It has more layers than that. It has more than the fact that the Red Wings are going to have a harder time winning games. Um, As you know, if you've been reading The Athletic, it is the trade deadline season, and Jonathan Bernier is going to be a focal point. Of, of that conversation, not necessarily because he's going to be moved, but because he's a central figure in, in in how the Red Wings approach this, whether they decide to move him and get a pick or a prospect or whether they extend him for that first reason that he's been a a primary source of stability for them throughout the last two years, their best goalie for the last two years. That to me was shaping up to be maybe the most interesting decision they were going to have to make at this deadline. Um, at least are the ones that we were going to find out about. I'm sure there's some interesting decisions that we never catch wind of. But um, that was going to be one of the more obvious ones that 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 you could kind of really sink your teeth into and say what should they do here. Um, I think this introduces a, a, kind of a ton of uncertainty to that. Certainly on the ability to move him.
2: Yeah, I mean certainly you're there. There's the local problems with the fact that. Thomas Grice is dead last in the NHL and goals given up above expectation. But then now you kind of think about the trade ramifications. We are 20 days from the trade deadline with Jonathan Bernier potentially having an injury of unknown uh, duration. And the market is almost ripe for him to be moved in the sense that you have a number of the teams that are, you know, towards the top of the NHL who have question marks in goal. Uh, Carolina, you know, as good as. Uh, their tandem has been Peter Morazic has been out for a while with an injury. James Reimer has been up and down. And Alex Nadelkovich is, again, a rookie goaltender coming in, uh, relatively unproven. They may want to add something there. Toronto's really struggled. You know, Freddie Anderson has not looked great. Jack Campbell has looked pretty good. But, again, are they prepared to move forward with Jack Campbell being their starting goaltender and, you know, Freddie Anderson being the guy that's backing him up? I mean, we can continue to talk about Edmonton. Colorado's had issues with Pablo Francuz being out for a period of time. And, you know, they go out and they trade a six round pick to Buffalo for Jonas Johansson, who uh, I think there was a Buffalo beat writer, maybe John Vogel, who said, and I quote, Jonas Johansson is the worst goaltender I've ever watched in my entire time covering the Buffalo Sabres. So that that's kind of the the interesting dynamic to all of this is the market is really ripe for a guy like Bernier to go out and potentially have a bidding war for him. So injury really uh, creates a bit of uncertainty here.
1: Yeah, it would have been interesting. I mean, I think the the impression I've gotten is that, you know, you're still probably looking at mid-round picks for a lot of rentals, but the thing about a goalie is they arguably have the most potential to be that proverbial missing piece for a team to get someone to up that offer and come off of that kind of established price. You know, we, we looked at the uh, trade comparables for some of the Red Wings' top chips last week, and the one that came up for Bernier was Michael Neuverth, and, and that's a third-round pick, right? And so I think that's a fair expectation, but, you know, it, it changes in a, in a second when 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 a team decides you're the thing that they need to, to feel good about going into the playoffs, going on a cup run, and Colorado is a team that has every reason, like you mentioned, to do that. So, um, you know, I don't know that, it, that it's like a franchise altering, it's not, it's not a franchise altering, uh, situation here, but it does have a lot of kind of little interesting ripple effects, uh, as the Red Wings approach this trade deadline.
2: Yeah. I think the, exactly what you said, the fact that the goaltender is almost, you know, in, when it comes to the initial playoffs, you're kind of the, the, the player that can almost make or break, uh, a season or a playoff run. I mean, we've seen this happen time after time. Whether it's you know Yaroslav Halak stopping the the, the juggernaut Washington Capitals, or you know Red Wings fans have been on the end of of Dwayne Rollison and, and and a number of other goaltenders in the past. So you know the, the, those kinds of deals certainly are, are interesting to to pay attention to um, if they happen. There haven't been a ton of those big name goalie deals where. You know, a team is going out to swing for a goaltender right before the trade deadline to try and carry them forward. I think the one that really does come to mind was Dwayne Rollison in 06 going to the Oilers and then taking them all the way to game seven of the Stanley Cup finals. I mean, that was a, a, a heck of a deal there. And so you never know what the market could be, even though, you know, right now I think most of us kind of think it could be that mid round pick if the Wings choose to move Bernier. You get into a bidding war with those four teams I just mentioned there you know, Colorado, Carolina, Edmonton, and Toronto, and potentially that price drives up. So it'll be really interesting to see how Bernie kind of shakes out over the next 20 days here. And of course,
1: there's the option of, of just extending him. Now, I, I think with the expansion draft considerations, there's a good argument to waiting to do that until after the expansion draft to, to, to make any kind of re-signing there, which at that point, it's not a big deal if you trade someone if you're not planning to sign them until effectively unrestricted free agency starts anyway. But I could also see someone making the case Hey, the way Thomas Grice has played this year, I don't know how how aggressive Seattle would be in trying to claim him either, uh, or if that's something that you'd be, you know, petrified about happening. And so, if if Jonathan Brinney is your guy, just get it done. Um, that's an element in all of this too, and it brings me to kind of what what I think we want to talk about is the main topic for today which is trading in a rebuild. What are the considerations to make? How do how should teams prioritize this? Because the Reddings have a few different guys, whether that be Jonathan Bernier, whether that be Bobby Ryan, Luke Glen Sam Gagner, who they could very easily trade in the next three weeks, I think, but that would also make a lot of sense to bring back in some capacity, whether that's decided beforehand or after the fact. Um, guys who, who who could help them next year in a number of different ways. So let's spend some time on that. And, and what do you see as kind of the pillars of how teams should approach trading in a rebuild?
2: Yeah, I think it's a really unique philosophy to think through. And we've kind of talked about the uh, pillars in other areas, but when it comes to a team that's rebuilding or approaching at the deadline, I think there's kind of five things uh, you have to pay attention to and have to be cognizant of in order to extract the best value. Uh, from the trade deadline. I think step number one is you have to appropriately assess your timeline. You know, I think Steve Eisman on day one of the job walks in and says, look, guys, this isn't going to be a short term thing. We're looking at least five years here. Um, and I'm hesitant to really give you anything firmer than that. Uh, and so as you're moving along throughout the season, you have to have a good grasp of where you are right now, where you're going to be in three years and where you're going to be in five years. And that's going to help you then kind of get to the next section, which is identify who's on your roster right now that's going to be a part of that team moving forward in contention. And, you know, if you're sitting here and you're the Red Wings, uh, you know, obviously that's Dylan Larkin, but you have to take stock of all the other guys. You have to have a fundamental understanding of aging curves and understand who's going to be at 90% of their peak, who's going to be at 60% of their peak, who's going to be liable to fall off a cliff here, and when should I be able to move them uh, to try and extract maximum value from their contract. You have to, you know, then when you're making those deals, you want to be thinking about, you know, what what do I need to add in order to shorten my timeline moving forward? And, you know, the goal of every trade really as a rebuilding team should be moving you closer towards identifying or acquiring elite talent. You know, we've talked about this on past episodes where I think the NHL draft right now is kind of the best market value way to land elite talent. And oftentimes that means finding yourself at the bottom of the the standings for a season in order to to put yourself in that position. But you know that means in deals, you should be looking for picks. You should be looking for prospects. You should be looking for guys that you could then subsequently flip uh, to net you more assets. And then in the guys you're moving out, you want to be thinking about shutting contract years uh, to maximize your cap flexibility. And so you know over the last few years we've seen the wings uh, kind of move away from the guys having the 6 7 year deals you know you have the buyout of Justin Abdelkader you have you know other moves along those lines to to shorten the number of contracts right now such that you only have a couple guys on the roster in 2 years uh, that are currently signed and then then kind of the last thing that i think you have to be able to do well is you have to have an appropriate assessment of when your prospects are going to be ready for the nhl because You know, we we oftentimes talk about having a fire sale at the deadline, but can you have a fire sale at the deadline if you have prospects that you cannot put in the NHL right now that are just simply not ready and you run the risk of stagnating their development? So ultimately, I think thinking through those five things is what's going to allow you to be kind of most successful at the trade deadline.
1: So there you go. Five simple things. No problem. Easy as pie, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, every team should be able to do this. I'm sure Buffalo's (laughs) got it figured out by now, right?
1: Of course, this is very difficult to do, and within each one of these topics are probably something we could spend an entire episode on. But I want to just hit on a few of them, one to two minutes each of them, to, to really give a lay of the land for where the Red Wings are at. Appropriately assess when you'll be in contention. Now, those who pay attention to the Red Wings and to Steve Iserman know that he has avoided this like the plague. Uh he has avoided timelines completely since taking over. He doesn't want to even get into when the Red Wings might be contenders, which from his perspective, I see the appeal of. You don't want to be held to someone, someone like me saying, hey, you said you were going to be good by 2023 or whatever. What What's going on? I mean, I think when you look at Buffalo and how long that's dragged out, one of the reasons why there seems to be so much unrest there is it's like... They went through this. They got Jack Eichel. They got him into his prime. Why is nothing happening yet? I think that would still happen if that was the case in Detroit. But not setting a timeline at least gives you a little bit of flexibility in, in, in that way of, of not having to be held to, I need to be good by this date. That said, you and me are not bound by that. Uh, we can kind of ballpark when we think uh, the Red Wings probably will have a uh, contention window opening.
2: Yeah, and I think if we're, we're ballparking where the Wings are, I think – I've been pretty consistent in saying I still think they're at least three years out from being that consistent playoff contender uh, unless lottery luck changes. You know, hypothetically, they win the lottery this year, they win the lottery next year, and now you're adding Shane Wright and Matty Beneers to this team. And all of a sudden, you have incredible depth up front, and you have some of these deep prospects moving forward. And, oh, you know, Moritz Sider comes in, and he has a Kale McCarr-type impact, Now you're talking about a team that's contending in two years, no doubt. Um, Things can certainly shorten up, but I think right now you're looking in the three to five year range uh, before you can really uh, say that you're going to be contending again. And again, when you're making those assessments, I'd rather err on the conservative side. I'd rather err on the side of not anticipating a prospect to outperform their projection. You want to be kind of level headed when you're going through this. So for me, You're still three to five years from being a a solid, consistent playoff contender.
1: My dad says that. He says, you know, if you're going to be surprised, let it be a happy surprise. Don't don't set yourself up to be surprised in a bad way.
2: That's that's exactly how an NHL GM should be approaching. So maybe we should hire your dad to be the NHL, uh, be the Red Wings general manager here.
1: I think he's had icing and offside down for, you know, 10, 10 to 12 years now. So so that's some pretty good uh, experience for him.
2: Can he do goaltender interference?
1: Uh, as good as it's being done right now, for (laughs) sure. All right,
2: fair enough, fair enough. Uh,
1: Yeah, no, I I think that's accurate. I mean, part of the conversation that you're going to get into here is does contention mean contending for a Stanley Cup, you're one of the six to eight best teams in the NHL, or does it mean you're in the playoff hunt, maybe even a playoff team?
2: Yeah, I think there's two ways to think about it. I mean, if you look at what a lot of the general managers say, they say, oh, get into the playoffs, anything can happen, right? And and we've certainly seen that over the years. You know, Columbus goes and sweeps Tampa. No one's expecting that to happen two years ago. Uh, But that being said, there is more to just getting into the playoffs. It's building a foundation to where you can consistently get into the playoffs. You don't want to be the team that's landing a seven seed one year and then is out the next year. Now you're stuck in mediocrity. You want to be the team that maybe the first year you're getting in, you're getting in as a seven or eight. But then the following year, you're getting in as maybe a five or six. And then the year after that, you're kind of working your way towards that. So I'd say you want to find a way to be a consistent playoff contender, meaning that you are consistently making the playoffs and giving yourself the opportunity for that luck or variance to, to roll out in your favor.
1: I mean, that that's where this timeline does get really hard to set, because when people ask me when I could see the Red Wings being back in the playoffs, I think my answer until this year had been 2022-23. Uh, I no longer think that's realistic. I'm going to move it back one year. I don't know if that's long enough, but I'm going to move it back to 2023, 24. You know, you're at that point, you will be looking at kind of established players, uh, you know, and obviously all this can change with, with any trade here, right? Like if you trade a player out of the the current core, some of this changes, but you know, Larkin, Manta, Bertuzzi, Zadina, Raymond, um, you're going to have solid depth players who should be established by then in Berggren, Valeno, uh, Rasmussen, Uh, And and I think at least one drafted forward, one more drafted forward coming in uh, into that top nine, that I think that's a playoff caliber top nine, Uh, assuming that, you know, the the center that we're talking about as the missing piece there is uh, drafted in the top five to eight picks. I mean, it's probably fair to expect a top six caliber center in that range. Um, I think 2023-24 gives you enough time to get those guys into the league relatively established to make the playoffs. That's like as an eight seed, right? um as a wild card um and now depending on who that is if it's Shane Wright maybe that goes up a little bit I still don't think it makes you uh, a, a real th- a cup threat by 2023-24 and that's you know to say nothing of the defense which, which I think is probably Mort Sider, Philip Hironik, Albert Johansson I don't know if I'm ready to call him a top four player but I think he's on that four five swing um trajectory right now I don't know what you're gonna have in William Wallander, Antetua Misto by then I think Troy Stetcher, if if he's a, a longer term piece, gives you a nice fixture there. John Merrill, if he's here to stay, gives you a nice fixture there. And you're probably going to draft at least one more defenseman in the top uh, eight to ten spots uh, as well in the next couple of years. That who who could be established by then. But again, that's just to to get there to get to the you know maybe maybe even you're just missing by then. Uh, but I think you've turned the corner and you're no longer sweating the. Uh, you know the, the the tankathon in the final month of the season, so to speak, and and all of that of course depends on goaltending too. If if they can't find a, a Jonathan Bernier level goaltender um, in 2023-24, then that goes out the window. I mean, it's it's a huge difference maker, and you see in uh, in Vancouver, I think you you've seen. Although Demko's been outstanding lately, but you can almost cut their season in half and say what was the difference in the first half? They weren't getting. This kind of goaltending out of Thatcher Demko. Why have they been a little better lately? Thatcher Demko has been a lot better lately, so uh, that's a difference maker too. Looking for an
0: assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with twenty four seven U.S. based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask us.
3: You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So, uh, you know, if we take that as kind of the start of it, if we say
1: 2023-24 or maybe that 24-25 season, uh, we can move into this next phase, which is identify current players who will age out prior to that window.
2: Yeah, and so this kind of comes down to your understanding of aging curves. And there's a lot of back and forth, but I think most of the recent aging curve work will tell you that the peak for forwards is somewhere around age 24 and 25, similar for defensemen. Goaltenders, it's a little more variable. Some people will say maybe the peak is out to 28 to 30 um, and that they have shorter peaks overall. Some will say that the peak of goalies is actually much earlier than that, maybe 23 And that we just don't get goaltenders into the NHL fast enough to really see some of those peaks. So I think the goalie, again, like everything else, is more uncertain. But regardless, you should be thinking about guys who are 24 to 25 uh, in that peak time being the guys that are going to be the ones carrying you. And then what we typically think is the average player can hold, you know, 90% of their peak all the way out to age 31, and that some of the elite players and star players tend to hold that peak out much further than that. But then after kind of age 31, 32, that's when you can start to see guys really sort of fall off a cliff, if you will. All of a sudden, they're just not the same player that they were. All of a sudden, you're seeing terrible impacts happening, and you just can't seem to figure out why. You know, Red Wings fans saw this happen uh, a fair bit. You know, you saw this happen with uh, you know, Justin Abdelkader, Jonathan Erickson, and some of those being injury-related. But again, guys can just fall off the cliff at that point. So, you know, in, in this situation, I think if you're thinking about, okay, if I'm saying forty four years from now being contention, you want to add four years to everyone's age right now and who's potentially aging their way out of this rebuild. And and I think that kind of brings up the question of is are Anthony Mantha and Tyler Bertuzzi potentially aging themselves out of this roster right now.
1: We could do so much time on this topic because I, I think, you know, Mantha is 26, Bertuzzi just turned 26, Manta will be 27 in uh, September. And so I think they're fair to lump into a category, but it gets interesting then of what do you do with Dylan Larkin, who's only two years younger. And that leads you into a lot of murky waters, I think. I mean, to me – I still look at all three of them and say they are going to be top six pieces even by that window we just laid out. But there's a decent and possibly even more likely than not chance that Mantha and Bertuzzi will only be at that level for the first one to two years of that ensuing window. Like if you're saying it's going to be three years from now that they're in the playoffs, Mantha Mantha and Bertuzzi are 29. And then you get two or three years until you're really flipping a coin every year. to to see how much you're going to get from them. Um, That might even come a year sooner than that, right? Like it it happens quick after that kind of age 30, 31 season where you're getting into dicey waters. So I understand that. I also think if you move them for that reason, I think each one of them that you move, you're adding a year to the rebuild, most likely. Uh, And if that's the case, then we're going to be sitting here in two years. The Red Wings aren't going to be any closer than they are right now. And Dylan Larkin's going to be the same age Anthony Mantha and Tyler Bertuzzi are as we have this conversation, and are we having that conversation about him? And then you're going to, if you decide that that, that that's the right course of action, you do it again. Well, you're going to have that same conversation, you know, one or two years after that about Philip Zadina and about Philip, and it can go on and on and on like that. And I realize I'm slippery sloping this a little bit. I don't think it's ridiculous to move Mantha or Bertuzzi, but I think you got to do it really tactfully, and it has to be more about the return than just the timeline. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, it does, and I think that's what you have to be so careful about because uh, there's historical precedent for rebuilding teams, making these deals, and being successful, and then there's historical precedent for teams making these deals and completely botching the return or botching what they did with the return and so yes. you know we've we've watched ottawa you know over the years sell eric carlson mark stone ottawa three years ago was in the conference finals ottawa was a period away from the stanley cup finals we that's where they were just three years ago and they've sold off eric carlson they brought in a number of picks yeah they were able to get tim stutzla out of that they sold off mark stone they didn't get enough. They got Eric Brandstrom and they got a 2022 and Oscar Lindbergh. But that's not enough for Mark Stone, who's arguably one of the best players, you know, in the league. They were able to sell Matt Duchesne after they weirdly spent on him. Um, but again, they have to do more and more with those deals. And right now, Ottawa doesn't look to be in a good spot. We hit, they have some pieces for sure. Brady Kachuk looks good. You know, Drake Batherson looks good. They've got you know Thomas Shabbat's there. Tim Stutzla obviously looks good, but we're not talking about the Senators being on the way back. They're a team that still seems to be several years out, you know. Th- and you contrast that with a team like Colorado that's able to sell high on Matt Duchesne. They get a heck of a return, and what do they do with that return? They go and they draft Kale McCarr, and then Kale McCarr changes their rebuild. And so, oh, that
1: was Byram. With or that sorry, Bowen right?
2: Byram, yes. Yeah, yeah. But even Bowen Byram Great adding player, him to yes. that, that piece, right? that's still a huge, huge deal. And then they go out, they sell Kyle Turris, who they get in that deal uh, as well. And that, that also allows them, as a part of that three-way deal, get Sam Girard, who is now one of the best defensemen in the league, and a 2018 second-round pick out of that. And So there are teams that do it right, and you see how quickly they can turn things around, like Colorado. And then you've got teams like... Ottawa that made that, their deals and potentially didn't get enough in one area, potentially didn't draft well with their return. You see a team like Columbus that sold Rick Nash years ago, and Columbus has not been able to dig themselves out of mediocrity. You see the Leafs, they when, when they went on their selling spree and they sold Phil Kessel, well, they were able to use some of the picks out of Phil Kessel to turn that into Freddie Anderson, who was good for a period of time up, up until this year. Um, but you know you have to you have to pay attention to the teams that know what they're doing and and know how to tear it down because just selling them off to sell them off is exactly is going to put you exactly where you said max it's going to put you right here three years from now you're in no better spot so you have to smartfully you have to really smartly approach this i think and kind of follow the path of do not settle for taking too little and make sure you know what you're doing with these returns
1: and the tightrope you walk is that even if the g m goes into this saying, okay, i want to do this." You know, thoughtfully and well, I Joe Sackick would not have told you on the day of the Matt Duchesne trade that it was going to result in an entire left side top four decor. You know what I mean? Like, like Bowen and, and Sam Jarrett of, of the future, there, right? Like, that's I, no one could have told you that. Um, doesn't mean that, that the upside, you know, wasn't there when you have a pick like that, but it was also totally plausible at that time that Ottawa stayed really good. And they ended up in the, you know, that pick ended up in the 18 to 23 range or something like that. Uh, and, and that, you know, the, that Sam Gerrard busted, you know, like that could have happened too based on the Kyle Turris uh, flip. So it, it is a dicey proposition. It's a tight rope. You have to walk. And that's why I think when people call for a move like that. You have to do it really carefully, and and there are situations where I think it makes sense. But I think to me, it's more about the situation of the trade than it is the situation of the player. Yeah, and that gets into you know a point three, which is obtain picks and prospects geared toward landing elite talent. The you know eternal, much easier said than done. You know. Yeah,
2: I mean that's that's just just go out and get someone to give you a couple of first yeah. round picks. You know, at and the elite
1: then- talent store.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's right
1: next to Checkers. It's
2: it is, that's exactly right. I mean, just go out, have them give you a couple of first-round picks, get them to you know under the table handshake deal where they'll go and tank their next season, and that way you've got three lottery picks, and and everything works great, right? I mean, that that's totally the way this is going to work, but in, in reality, it's not, um, and that's why it's so important to to make sure that you're you're selling these players if you're going to make the deal, you're not take you're not settling for, for too little. And, and I think that's the key here is find someone who is willing to pay the price that you'd like, uh, because if they don't and you settle for too little, you've now set yourself back, not just one year, but likely a couple of years. And so I think that's, that's the key here is don't go out and make, you know, the kind of deal that doesn't bring you enough. Um, you need to go out and make the smart deals, uh, for these players and, and know what you're doing with uh, with the returns.
1: And sometimes that means not going out and shopping around at all. It's waiting for that to present itself to you. Because if I'm a GM, what am I looking for? I'm looking for who's calling me, asking about one of his really good players. Uh, and I, I'm wondering, okay, I can get this guy off him, right? I don't have to give up something I'm I'm all that attached to here, right? So sometimes it means sitting back and waiting. It doesn't mean you're not doing your job, but GM's got to call around and talk all the time. But you know, there's probably a way to play that that's not so aggressively, like, hey, you know, what will you what will you give me for this guy? What will you give me for Mantha? Like that. I don't know that that leads you to where you want to be.
2: Yeah, I I completely agree. I think some of these deals, I think when we end up hearing a little bit more about how they came to fruition, it's spur of the moment. Someone called and just said, hey, what you know, are you guys willing to move this guy? And all of a sudden, you know, bam, a deal is on the table, and, and 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 that's how things can work. And so. You know, super, super important to, to make sure you know what you're doing here. All
1: right, moving into point four. This is one that I think the Red Wings may be literally the best position team in the league already, which is shed contract years where possible to maximize flexibility. Anthony Mantha and Dylan Larkin are the only guys signed to be out next season.
2: Yeah, this is by far, if you're grading the Red Wings rebuild, they get an A++ in this section of maintaining cap flexibility. And this is imperative because like you and I have just talked about for the last several minutes, we have a guess when we think the wings are going to be good. Again, we have a guess when we think they're going to be in playoff contention. But if you go out and you hamstring yourself on that guess, and something goes the wrong way, you're stuck. You you have gone out and you have shot your rebuild in the foot. And now you're sitting in a position where you're in purgatory for several more years. And, and I mean, there's plenty of examples of this. I mean, it's it's Edmonton going and dealing Taylor Hall for, for Adam Larson because they don't need that offense at that time and they want some defense. And Adam Larson's not Taylor Hall. It's not that move. You go out, you make that deal, uh, you, you end up in a big bad spot. They go out, they trade Jeff Petrie, who is an outstanding defenseman for Montreal. Now, Edmonton needs defense. And so it, it's making those right moves. It's maintaining that flexibility. It's making sure that you've got the years and space available such that At the right moment, when everything falls to when everything comes together, you can pounce. This is what I've been talking about with the Carolina Hurricanes in 2018. You land Andre Svechnikov second overall, and all of a sudden, you trade Elias Lindholm and Noah Hannafin for Dougie Hamilton. You trade Jeff Skinner to clear out that contract. You're able to make big free agent signings, but they did it by keeping everything short, by maintaining that roster flexibility. And by year after year, Each year prior to that 2018 draft, they were selling, and they were selling for picks, they were selling for prospects, shedding those contracts, shedding the term, making sure that at the right moment when everything came together, they could jump on it. And so Wings have done an outstanding job of that. And it's not really a concern for them moving forward, but they have to continue to be diligent about this. Yeah,
1: I think that's a good way to put it. I mean, the last step is one that I think you would get a, a, shall we say, mixed response on on how the Red Wings are doing, and that's uh, appropriately scoped when current prospects are ready to transition to the NHL. You know, this is one that I have a real big uh, disclaimer above anything I'm going to say, because in three years on this beat, I've learned that I don't actually know this. I I probably came in thinking that I could identify it, I wrote at 2019 training camp that Joe Valeno was doing everything he he uh, he seemed to need to do to to take a run at the roster. Even if I didn't think he would make it, I thought he was showing everything that that you'd have wanted to see from him. He doesn't even come close to making the team, and then he has like a a, a good, not unbelievable season in the AHL. So clearly, I was seeing something that wasn't reflective of what you actually need to be seeing to know when someone is ready to transition to the NHL. I I was too early on thinking Zadina was going to be ready for the NHL. It's clearly something that's really hard to assess. And so I almost go into this thinking, man, my information gap is such that I can tell you what I think. I'm not sure that I could tell you when someone is ready for the NHL.
2: Welcome to the club. I don't think anyone can tell you, right? I think it's all a guess. You know, anyone who tells you that they know exactly when a player is ready to hit the NHL, is I mean I, I have a bridge to sell you because <laughs> it's it's difficult. There's there is no guarantee anywhere for when any of these guys are going to be ready. There's be, there's work being done to assess this. I think that's the fun part. Is there are there's not really been a lot of analytic work done in development tracks and development pipelines. I think if you're interested, uh, check out Connor Jung's uh, J U N G his prospect work. His model, the Apple model, is kind of projecting uh, kind of prospect development and pipelines and almost assessing the probability of when a player would go to the NHL based on historical players that have come before them. I think that's a really neat way to do it. He and I are actually going to take a look at which teams tend to overperform and underperform relative to the expected development pipelines to try and put some actual development work out there. But the fact of the matter is no one can really tell you uh, what the development's going to look like and when a player's really ready. And you don't know until you go and you drop them in the NHL and you see what happens. And so uh, that's why, even though, you know, I'll make fun of teams for saying, I want someone to dominate at a lower league before they <laughs> go to the next league. It's because that they at least can feel sure or better about their decision to move them up. To me, that's a wasted year, but in reality, it's, it's a GM telling you, I, I now feel sure about moving this guy up. That's how Gustav Nyquist comes in and basically goes point per game in the 2013 2014 season. Is, you know, at that point, he is raring to go and he comes in, he scores 30 goals in 57 games and just completely turns the league right. upside down. So it's then, then you feel good about it. Then you feel good about your assessment, but you don't know would it have been better earlier. So at the end of the day, this is, I think, the hardest step. Because you can't just sell the farm. You can't just sell every player on your team. Wait, wait, wait.
1: This is harder than going to get the elite talent?
2: This is harder than going to get the elite <laughs> talent, I think. I don't know about that. The elite
1: talent? Who's got the elite
2: talent? I, I think it's in the elite talent store, Max, and you just need to know how to get there. <laughs> but no, in reality, I think if you continue to position yourself at the bottom of the draft, yeah. you are likely at That's some fair. point to yes. get lucky with your yes. pick and get there. This, though, is... Whether you like, how do I make sure I don't botch the development timeline of a player? That's the tough part. And that's because there is nothing that tells you when a guy is ready to go or not. And we've seen this over the last decade as, uh, you know, watching this team, whether, whether it was Thomas Yurko, a guy who's supremely talented, but then don't know what to do. It's it's Timu Polkinen scoring literally a goal per game in the AHL, but then coming up and not being able to do anything at the NHL level. And it's what was he missing? You know, we've we've seen this year after year with some of these different guys that it is such a challenge to understand how to do. And this is why you can't just go out and sell every player on your roster. And this is why you still every year out there shopping for veterans. It's because this is, to me, the hardest aspect of moving your team forward is knowing when these guys are ready. All right.
1: So. Let's take those concepts and let's turn it into something practical. We may, we may leave that last one uh, out of the equation a little bit here for a minute, uh, that that uh, scoping current prospects transition time. I'll, I'll tee you up to talk about one of your uh, real sources of expertise, among the many uh, that you have and you bring to the show. Let's talk about the Carolina Hurricanes rebuild because they are a team that I think has pulled off a rebuild uh, in a in pretty much the way that you want to see. If you're entering a rebuild, you want to probably end up somewhat like the Hurricanes ended up. And so I don't want to hear the whole story of the Carolina Hurricanes rebuild. I just want to hear how they managed the trade deadline. What did they do well as it pertained to that? And is there anything the Red Bings can take from it?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, I alluded to this earlier. If you look at their three deadlines prior to the 2018 draft, 15, 16, and 17, I think the number one thing that they did well was they understood the guys that had high value to other teams. And then they went out and made good deals that actually really kind of netted above-market value uh, returns. And so, you know, at 2015, it's moving Andre Sekera for a conditional first that, again, in this one, you you got a first out of it. It didn't end up being uh, a high-impact player for them. It was Julian Gauthier who was then dealt to the Rangers for Joey Keen last year. Um, And then they're able to go out and move Yuri Toulouse for a 2016 third. So they're bringing in a couple picks. 2016, they've got a couple of guys to shop, and this is the one that I think is the big parallel for Wings fans. The guy they deal in 2016 is Eric Stahl. He was the face of the franchise. He was the captain. He was the guy that, you know, took them to on so many playoff runs as their best playoff performer, uh, you know, the 9 run for the Hurricanes to the conference finals. He scored some memorable goals there, but you go and you deal them, and they bring back a 2016 second that, Ends up being a part of the deal that brings Tavo Taravainen to the to the Hurricanes, and so they're using those assets and flipping them around. They get another second out of that as well. They move Christopher Steege. They move John Michael Lyles uh, again, bringing in a couple of more picks with those deals. And then in 2017, they bring in Victor Staub, or they deal Victor Stahlberg for a third that they use to get goaltending help with Scott Darling. That ultimately didn't work out. They move Ron Hainsey, 38 year old Ron Hainsey, for a 2017 second. That ended up being dealt to Vegas for Trevor Van Riemsdyk, and so this is how they were able to bring pieces of their team in. And so from those three rebuilds, they moved, or from those three deadlines, they moved a lot of money out, a lot of term out, brought five picks in, and then were able to use those picks to bring in Tevo Terevina and Trevor Van Riemsdyk, two guys who were a part of their playoff roster. And Terevina is now one of the best players in the NHL. Uh, so they were able to very smartly value which guys were likely to net the biggest returns, go out make those deals, and get kind of the, the at least market value if not more for each of them now help me out
1: here. My memory's fuzzy on the Bickle on the Bickle and Terrabine thing Did that have anything to do with Bickle's money like was that a cap situation at all? Yeah, or? that
2: was Chicago being squeezed with the cap, and so again, yeah, Carolina's like here I'll give you some a couple of picks so Carolina makes some deals, and they say, okay, we'll take Brian Bickle, but you got to throw in Tara Vining with him as well. And in return, we'll give you picks. So that'll help us take some of that money away. But again, they position themselves as a team with cap flexibility to be able to make a deal like that.
1: So the reason I like this example is because it's something the Red Wings could do too. I mean, they, they could say to a team, hey, you, you got to move money out. That's fine. We got this. We'll even give you something. You know, it doesn't have to just be a, a straight handoff for future considerations like the Mark Stahl thing is, but you're going to have to give us a, a good young player too, right? Like that's something Steve Eisman could say. Um, another thing Steve Eisman could do is what you mentioned with Ron Hainsey dealing with Vegas for Trevor Van Riemsdyk, who got Trevor Van Riemsdyk uh, via the expansion draft, I believe, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so that's something that, you know, as, as Seattle comes into um you know having all these players uh, th- that it's just going to be picking up you know they don't, they're not going to play all of them you, you don't have a 31 man roster 30 man roster i guess because vegas is exempt from this um they can trade those for extra picks and in fact i would wager they're going to be looking to do that on some guys so that's another example of you build up this stockpile, and it allows you to then deal with a team like seattle who's going to be in a position to help you out too they might prefer picks in some cases to some of these young players
2: Yeah, I mean that's exactly it, and and so that going back to one of the principles being maintaining that cap flexibility, Carolina being able to practice that allowed them to make a deal that really reshaped their future and put them in position to to make uh you know things make kind of the noise moving forward once they were able to land Svechnikov and Detroit's very well positioned to do that too. I mean, there's a number of teams between this year, next year, and in years coming where. They're, they're going to be struggling to, to land uh, or to be able to clear cap space. I mean, Vegas is still a team that stands out to me. Hardly any money comes off the books this year. Uh, you know, Thomas Nosek is going to be free agent, Alec Martinez, uh, Dylan Colin, but that's it. They've still got $12 million tied up in goaltending for next year. I mean, can you get Vegas to give you Marc-Andre Fleury plus one of their higher-end prospects or Something along I don't know lives. if they're trading Flurry at this point. With the well, way he's I mean, playing. the way he's played this year, sure, but do you, you know, you can potentially see he's a guy that, at his age, I'm going to suspect is going to drop off a cliff or have some wild variants happening because he wasn't good last year. Uh, probably not going to deal him this year, but he's still under contract again next year. And so, if you're Vegas, you know, are, are you willing to move him out and his seven million dollars, knowing you don't have to retain anything? And if you're Detroit, can you land some of their? you know, picks or prospects or guys that they've uh, got available for them. So, you know, th- Vegas is just one example, but the fact of the matter is you want to be positioning yourself to be able to do this kind of deal. You saw it a little bit with Mark Stahl, although the return was a second. I think you can do this in ways that also bring you good young roster players.
1: Yeah. All right. Um, I mean, obviously the, the, the cap side of that is kind of a, a secondary focus that we could talk about on the show to uh, – to kind of some of those mid-tier trades that they can pull off with their pending UFAs. It's the kind of thing that's going to net you a mid-round pick or maybe kind of a B prospect uh, for guys that you take a fly around. But, But like you said, there's real value to stockpiling those picks. Uh, and, and just then you can do whatever you want with them. You can make the pick. You can trade the pick. You can do whatever you want. It gives you darts. It gives you ammo for trades. Teams always want draft picks, so even if you yourself are not going to be the one to make them, it gives you ammo to go out and take a run at somebody else, so it's never bad to have a ton of draft picks, uh, never.
2: Yeah, I mean, and that's what Carolina's done so w- such a good job at over the last few years is they don't make all their picks. They were able to use a couple picks to turn it into Teva Taravainen, and take on the salary of Brian Bickle. They were able to, to use picks to, to get Trevor Vance and They've been able to flip picks up and down drafts the last few years. So they're, they're, they're definitely a team that's done a really nice job in moving those picks around. And so, you know, you're Detroit right now. You've got three second-round picks already. You know, potentially you're able to land a couple more picks, and then you want to be able to utilize them. You know, you don't have to make every pick, although in Detroit's case it's not a bad idea to make a lot of yeah. picks. But if there's teams that are lacking a lot of picks right now, um, which there are plenty of teams that have dealt far too many picks away, uh, Edmonton being one of them, uh, there are potential. there's the potential to sell those picks back or give picks back to those teams in exchange for more picks, more prospects, something along those lines. So at the end, you want to be the one holding all the cards and just knowing when to play them.
1: The path to that pick stockpiling probably comes through adding mid-rounders for guys like Mark Stahl, Luke Lindenning, Bobby Ryan, Sam Gagné. Those who have been listening and reading know that. Let's spend five to ten minutes here on kind of what what I guess we would term the, the shakeup potential trades. Um, and I know I do this to you sometimes. I kind of put you on the hot seat. So I will uh, formally ask you are, you, are you ready to go on the hot seat here as I ask you these questions?
2: I am absolutely ready. Let's do it. <laughs>
1: All right, so uh, Anthony Manta, what would it take for you to move Anthony Mantha? How does all this that we've learned about uh, over the course of this episode apply to someone like an Anthony Mantha? And, and let's throw Tyler Bertuzzi in there too, or do you want to do him separate?
2: Yeah, I mean, we, we should talk about him both together. Bertuzzi will be a little bit of a unique case given that he just hasn't played really this year. He's injured, yes. Um, and we have no idea what his timetable is like. He may not even be healthy enough to be dealt at the trade deadline in 20 days, so we don't know that. But, you know, the Manta deal is one you have to entertain, right? We just said, if we follow our principles that we laid out, you know, and we say four years from now is when we think Detroit would be consistent on contending. Anthony Mantha's 30. I just said that forwards can sometimes fall off the cliff around 31 or so. Mantha, I think is good enough to sustain his play maybe to 33, 34. Um, But are you better off taking value for him right now? Uh, And so there's a number of deals out there that I think are possible, uh, surrounding Anthony Mantha. I think Craig Custance in his article, um, someone had pitched a, a, a deal of a first round pick, third round pick, and Jake Bean from Carolina to Detroit in exchange for Anthony Mantha. And Jake Bean's a guy that Carolina could potentially lose in the expansion draft. Uh, and we know Carolina's first this year is probably going to be in the high 20s. And so if you're if you're thinking in that regard, Yeah, I mean, that's a deal that I think you absolutely make because if you're Detroit, you're kind of acknowledging that your timeline's a little far out right now. And for a 26-year-old Anthony Mantha, you might as well take picks and prospects, uh, Jake Bean being 22, uh, guys who are going to maybe better fit your, your timeline moving forward. So,
1: is the idea that the Canes would protect Slavin and Pesci, obviously, and then Brady Shea over Jake Bean? or Because Dougie Hamilton's an unrestricted free agent. They don't so have to protect him. They
2: don't have to in the sense that if you let him be unsigned, right, he's immediately a free agent the following day, right? hmm And so, you know, there's been some stories in Carolina. I think uh, it'll be interesting to see if they try and get a deal done with him ahead of the time, because I've based on the stories that I've read, it does seem like they're still a little bit apart. And so does Carolina risk letting Dougie Hamilton hit unrestricted free agency? Do they protect him versus losing Jake Bean? I don't know what they're going to do. You know, the everyone should check out, you know, Sarah Sivian's article. She hasn't done it since the end of 2020, but in that scenario, she had them extending Dougie prior to, um, prior to the expansion draft in order to protect him and as such, losing Jake Bean afterwards, I don't think they protect Brady Shea over Jake Bean, um, especially with the way Jake Bean's playing right now—ten points, twenty games—and with Shea's pretty contract, yeah, pretty yeah, high, yeah. Yeah. right? Uh, but it will be—that's the number one question, I think—is—is is, do they get a deal done with Dougie Hamilton before the expansion draft, or do they let him hit unrestricted free agency?
1: I mean, Bean is a twenty-two, going on twenty-three, six-foot-one, left-shot D. He's a former thirteenth overall pick in the twenty sixteen draft. And while he's kind of just getting his toe, or his toe uh, I guess he's, he's kind of all in now. He's played 20 games uh, in the NHL this year. But but in previous seasons, you know, he played two NHL games in 2018-19. He played zero in 2019-20. But in the AHL, he's been very good. I mean, he was at 0.8 points per game as a second-year defenseman in the AHL last season. That's at age 21. Um, that's really impressive. I mean, it's the kind of thing that if you add that uh, to a, a late first-round pick, and I think Bean would be the centerpiece of a trade like that, I actually think that makes a lot of sense. I think it's the kind of thing you could reasonably argue for. Um, I'm a little skeptical that Carolina would, uh, you know, decide that they're not going to just make it work and protect Bean, and then you know take take the Dougie uh, conversation to the wire. But if that's the way it plays out, and, and they decide, hey, this is a guy that uh, we're going to lose here one way or the other, let's make a move. then I think it's the kind of thing you that's the kind of deal you consider. Um, moving Amantha Erb or Bertuzzi for because you can immediately see what it's getting you. You're not playing this game on who's going to be there at, at 24 25. You can make a straight up assessment. This is a guy who looks like a top four defenseman in Jake Bean.
2: Yeah. And I mean, the, at the rate he's scoring at right now, that's that's top pair scoring rate at 0.5 points per game. And, you know, using Connor Jung's model that I just alluded to, uh, you know, he's got them projected to land between somewhere between a top four and a top pair defenseman. Left I mean, shot. he's
1: scoring almost as much as Philip Hironik right? at the same age. And
2: it's not secondary assists. It's <laughs> actual points. So, you know, I think if you're looking at Detroit's roster and their, pi- their pipeline, the right side seems to be pretty solid. It's the left side that needs some addition. And so if you have the ability to not only get a first-round pick, but to get a guy that could be your top pair left defenseman or at bare minimum your second pair left defenseman, uh, and then you can figure out what you want to do with Albert Johansson, uh, I think that's a that's a hugely attractive deal. So to me, especially deal, when it comes
1: with a pick, right, in first especially yeah.
2: when it comes with the first round pick. And in that scenario, also a third round pick. Uh, so you now have four third round picks, and that's where you can start getting into the shopping scenarios there. So I think that's a very attractive deal on the surface. And I think there's potential to make a deal like that with a lot of other teams.
1: Yeah. So, so that's in Craig Custance's uh, who says no article. I thought it was outstanding the other day. Um, and the executive said he thinks it makes sense for both teams. So I, I, I think that is something that, you know, when you see that, it, it's pretty interesting. Is there, you mentioned the deal to me the other day when we were texting about, you know, this topic and what would it realistically, like what would you really move Manta for that I thought was very interesting. And it's based on a similar premise about the expansion draft.
2: Yeah, it's it's the Colorado Avalanche, and they're a team that's again going to have some expansion draft decisions. You know, the more I think about what they'll do, um, if you look at their defense, they've got they they're going to have to protect uh, Eric Johnson as of now because he has a no move clause, and then behind Eric Johnson, uh, guys that would need to be protected are Sam Girard, Keel McCarr, and Devin Taves. And so those three are obviously all outstanding defensemen. All three warrant protection. You know, potentially the most likely scenario for the Avs is you get Eric Johnson to waive his no-move clause um, under the expectation that Seattle would be unlikely to take him, and potentially then you can navigate by protecting Gerard Taves and uh, protecting McCarr at that point. However, you know, if Colorado is in the mood to explore dealing from depth because, in addition to those four guys I've mentioned, they obviously have Bowen Byram, they have Connor Timmons, they Ryan Graves. I mean, they have a heck of a defensive group. Are they willing to explore a deal in which they're willing to move one of those younger guys, whether it's a Bowen Byram, a Sam Gerard, or a Connor Timmons? Um, I think Timmons is maybe a little behind Byram, and I think Byron's maybe a little behind Gerrard. But if you can center a deal around one of those excellent Avs defensemen...
1: Well, Byram's exempt. Byram is exempt. From
2: yeah, you yeah, no, I just mean yeah. like, I'm just talking trade it, purpose got it, got in it. general. Yeah, if yeah. you can center a deal around one of those three guys, uh, around Mantha and around one of those three defensemen, whether it's Gerard, who's 22, and right now, if you go to Evolving Hockey and hit sort by goals above replacement and filter to defensemen, Gerard's number one in the league in goals above replacement... Um, or Connor Timmins, who is an excellent prospect or Bowen Byram, who, you know, Red Wings fans certainly remember as an outstanding defenseman uh, from the WHL, who's again, had a good start to the season here. Um, if you're able to center a deal around one of those three guys with Mantha, that's another possibility to think about, but particularly if there is any rumblings that Eric Johnson's unwilling to waive his no move clause, which I don't know if that'll be the case, but uh, either way, I think you still have an opportunity to make a deal here.
1: Certainly the kind of thing to monitor. I mean, th- these are the things that are going to come up a lot um, around the expansion draft is teams that are squeezed at a certain position. Now, Colorado, here's what I would wonder. Does Colorado just protect four? Because I think they could probably get away with just protecting four forwards in McKinnon, Rantanen, Landeskog, Kadri.
2: Yeah, if you do that, I mean, at that point, uh, you know, you're risking Brandon Saad, who is 28. Yep. And Brandon Saad, you know, I actually had an Avs fan say this to me the other day that when they added Brandon Saad, they thought he was a luxury, but now you're realizing that it's almost a necessity that he has helped really elevate their play this season as well. And I mean, we're talking about the Avs right now; they're they're out shooting opponents. By He's a ridiculous pending amount. UFA, so they could do that. They yes. could expose. So they could do the same reason, thing. Yeah. Um, you know, same concept Dougie. As, as Dougie Hamilton. But yeah, I mean, it's an interesting call. You could. I'd be surprised um, because there's a lot of really good forwards in Colorado as well. Yeah,
1: you'd be exposing Burkowski, Comfer, Donskoy, all players who I yeah. think Seattle would be reasonably uh, happy to have on their yeah. inaugural so team. I,
2: I think it's likely that they get Eric Johnson the wave um, in that scenario, but I, I just think, regardless, it's the same concept as dealing for Jake Bean. You're dealing with a team that has a plethora of players that are outstanding. Jake Bean, the only reason he's not in the end show already is he's behind that excellent Carolina defensive group and has struggled to crack that lineup similar concept with connor Timmins here and you know so potentially you're you're able to make a deal with colorado in that in that kind of vein
1: all right i think that uh i, I could definitely see the logic there i mean th- you know the one that i uh, have asked you about just between the two of us in the past is if i'm making a mover on this i want a young player who i can reasonably project i don't want to be playing the guessing game in the draft unless it's inside the top probably 10 to 15 because uh, then you kind of know what kind of prospect you're going to get and Manta's term, I think, opens you up to to be able to make that case to a team that you know I, I want your top prospect. I don't just want a draft pick. Um, and the one I've wondered about is a team like Minnesota that's gotten off to a start at uh, a really nice first half to the season here. They're absolutely in, in contention for the West Division. Certainly, look like they're going to be a threat to be uh, in the playoffs. And, and you know, you never know; they might finish the regular season right in line with the Colorado or a Vegas. And I look at Matt Boldy at Boston College, who's a guy that, you know, I saw uh, in the lead up to the 20, what was that, 2018 NHL draft, 2019 NHL draft? 2019. 2019 NHL draft. He was a good player. And and I think, you know, he's really continued to to grow at Boston College. And I wonder, would you trade Anthony Mantha for Matt Boldy straight up? Would Minnesota do that? I don't know.
2: I think Minnesota, if they're looking at their team right now, and you're talking about a potentially youngish group. They may not. um, However, you know, you never know. I mean, they've got a lot of depth uh, at forward now. I mean, obviously hoping that Marco Rossi recovers um, from his COVID, um, you know, exposure, kind of his COVID infection to maybe back to his heights, but Adam Beckman's been an outstanding player, uh, you know, as in his development, Joel Erickson Eck is developing at an outstanding rate. Obviously we can't, do this without talking about Kaprizov and him yep. just looking like Datsuk out there at times. So maybe, maybe Minnesota says no, but at the same time you can say, look, with the way we're playing right now, uh, we might as well take advantage of our kind of aging defensive group to a certain extent and say, yeah, let's go for it. Let's make a deal. Matt, you know, send Anthony Mantha over cause they can always use some more scoring, um, as, as well as being a defensively responsible, Uh, defense or forward and then say, yeah, let's trade Matt Boldy. So I think that'd be a very interesting deal for the wings to make. Now, Matt Boldy's a winger, right? So the wings have a lot of wingers already. Um, Doesn't necessarily help you down the center spot, but Boldy also has an outstanding goal scoring capacity. And, you know, you just imagine him playing on a line with, you know, some of the playmakers that the wings have, and that'd be a lot of fun to watch.
1: Well, the reason I think it makes sense, you know, in, in principle, and I don't, you know, I'm not starting a rumor here. It's just one that, that as I've thought of, what would it really take? Because people have asked about Manta for so long now this season that it's made me kind of think about what would it really take to make sense for the Red Wings? And what what's a team that could really offer that and could be in position to do it? The reason I think it makes sense for the Wild is, like you said, they've got a little bit of an aging defense core. And while I really like Boldy as a prospect, I don't know that you could say he has higher upside than Mantha, like not drastically. I mean, you can argue that he's got more runway to really reach that upside, but at the end of the day, Mantha's a player who we've seen what he can be. Last season, he was on pace to be a seventy point winger. He's a big, uh, physically imposing winger who can score goals, who can make plays, and who can give you something at every part of the ice. Boldy's not quite as big as Manta, but it's kind of a similar deal there. Like he's a he's a big winger uh who can be a power forward, he can score goals, and you know, I I think he plays significant penalty kill for Boston College, if I'm right about that.
2: Um, uh, I don't know off the top of my head.
1: I think I saw that he has like three shorthanded goals or something this season. I'll I'll look it up uh, as you talk at the next break here, but that's why I think Minnesota would do well to continue it because you really just kind of press the fast forward button on Boldy and you get that guy now when you're going into the playoffs rather than having to wait for him to develop and mature. The reason I think that it could make some sense for the Red Wings is that uh, you're you're kind of hitting the rewind button and you're getting Manta's age kind of reset. And, and you don't know if you're going to get a player as good as Manta. Maybe you get a little bit on the up end of maybe you get a guy who who's that and, and he's that younger and, and, and all that. But really what you're doing is this is a, a move that I think you could argue is this is a, a fair value prospect-wise and it fits your timeline and you just get a little younger. It's why I think it could make sense, but I don't know. And this is not source. This is not intel. It's just as I've thought about, you know, people have asked what – what would you do for Manta? This is one that's popped into my head, I guess.
2: Yeah, I mean, Matt Boldy and along the same lines, if, if you can sweet talk Montreal into Cole Caulfield, I think either one of them makes a heck of a lot of sense in this regard. I think Montreal is very similar uh, to Minnesota in that respect, and and there's always an association with Montreal and Manta, just given the, the, the French-Canadian connection. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that kind of player for really good prospect makes a lot of sense for the Wings because – In addition to getting a guy who you uh, are kind of expecting to be a good player, you're resetting that timeline by finding a guy who is now going to maybe be aging into his prime by the time you think you're going to be good. So you're not necessarily really losing years at all um, on your rebuild. All
1: right. So Matt Boldy does not have three shorthanded goals. I was thinking of a different Boston College player, Mark McLaughlin. He does have one. So I think that means he kills penalties unless that was kind of a freak situation where he just got tossed out for the last 12 <laughs> seconds and made the most of it. I don't know. I, I haven't watched Boston college very much. I'm looking forward to during the tournament this week.
2: Yeah. I haven't really watched Boston college at all. Cause uh, been mainly watching Boston university by virtue of having half my family go to Boston university and half the Red Wings prospects are at Boston university. <laughs> so,
1: well, nevertheless, I I just think it's an interesting concept. And, and uh, I, I think there's deals like that to be, you mentioned Cole Caulfield, I actually, you know, like, I don't know that I... Cole Caulfield's going to win the Hobby Baker, so that's probably, uh, you know, a, a sign that he's doing... He's, he's got to put more on the board in college in two years than Matt Boldy has. I'm not totally sure that I think Cole Caulfield's projection is like... You know, I mean, the, the complete upside of Cole Caulfield is clear. It's like, you know, Alex Debrink it all over again. Um, I'm not sure that I, that I would value Caulfield that much higher than Matt Boldy.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm still... They I'll went close this,
1: together in the draft. They did like pretty close. Only,
2: yeah. I think five picks apart. If I remember correctly uh, with Boldy actually going before uh, Caulfield, I think Boldy went 10. If I remember correctly and Caulfield, no, Boldy went 12 and Caulfield went 15. If I remember correctly. Um, so, you know, they're, they're not that far apart. I think the biggest difference is there's always going to be question marks about Caulfield skating in size. Mm-hmm. You know, is he, is he big enough? Is he the same skater as De I don't think so, but, you just continue to watch him dominate the levels that he's at from a goal-scoring standpoint. I mean, he he absolutely is going to run away with the Hobie Baker. Like, this is all just a show. Cole, Cole Caulfield is going to win the Hobie Baker, and, and and he's just been absolutely dominant. So it's it's interesting. It's it's certainly interesting. For some reason, you know, I, I still want to bet on Matt Boldy a little bit more than Caulfield, but it has nothing to do with anything logical and everything to do with is Caulfield going to be able to continue doing this? Yeah, it's like
1: a toolkit translation. Thing.
2: Right. That's exactly yeah. it. Like, is he going to be able to continue to do this at the next level? And I, I don't know. I don't know the answer. Yeah.
1: But I, I just think, you know, that's the kind of thing I, I would take the name that I can, that I can let my scouting staff right now. Tell me as I'm making the deal, what do, what do you think of this? What do you think of this guy? What do you think of this uh, value uh, w- with a named player? Then I would, you know, the nebulous, oh, that's a first round pick that could last, that could land anywhere from, you know, realistically, if it's a contender doing that, you know, 20 to 32. And and I just would much prefer that, that, And you know, Boldy obviously was drafted at 12 and Coffee was drafted at 15. So obviously that's a little bit better than you're expecting to get between 20 and 32, but I don't know.
2: I'm, I'm
1: rambling at this point, but um, I, I just thought that was a kind of a worthwhile dive there. Obviously there's some wild cards too, that I think we could probably get into I mean, is it fair to say that the, the range you would want for uh, Bertuzzi is pretty much the same as you would for Mantha? It's it's different situations because Mantha's got the term, but Bertuzzi's got his own advantage that he's an RFA and you can negotiate your own contract with him.
2: Yeah, I think you have that advantage. I think I think it's fair to ask for a similar return. I don't think you get a similar mm. return because I think Mantha at least has pedigree in the sense that he's done this multiple seasons uh has the pedigree of what he did, you know, as a prospect, uh, and has the pedigree of what he did when he scored a goal per game as a as a draft pick, you know, in his pre-draft year. Um Tyler Bertuzzi doesn't necessarily have all of those. However, he has scrapped and earned his way to being a top-line forward in the NHL and has continued to prove absolutely everybody wrong. Um but I don't think he has enough of a track record to where a team is going to want to pay the same price that you are asking for when it comes to Anthony Mantha. All right.
1: Well, I think that's a pretty good stopping point there then. Um, Is there anything else you want to talk about before we let everybody go? The Red Wings have a couple of games this week uh, at Nashville, a team that all of a sudden they're kind of within striking range of in the central division.
2: It's wild. I mean, there was, (laughs) because Chicago's goaltending has fallen back to earth. uh, That fourth spot really comes up for grabs here, whether it's uh, Columbus, Nashville, Dallas, or Detroit. So we'll see there is going to be no playoff chase. I'm going to just say that, but <laughs> I was uh, going to
1: say you're putting them in the playoff chase.
2: No, no, they're, they're, absolutely they're four not. points
1: back of, uh, Nashville with the same number of games played nine points back of Chicago and Columbus with the same number of games. But I don't think they're in the playoff hunt, but they are, they're in the hunt for seventh. I mean, maybe sixth. I don't know. It depends what happens with Dallas in in that four game uh, differential.
2: Yeah. I, I It'll be interesting to see. I think at the end of the day, especially if Jonathan Bernie is out for a period of time, you will see everything come crashing down.
1: Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's that's an app. You know, we, we said the stat of how many games the have won uh, three without Jonathan Bernier at least playing in the game. Uh, let's see what happens down the stretch here if he has to miss more than just a couple of games. That is the expectation. He's going to miss the Nashville series. I don't know if people needed to hear that. I, I think it probably went without saying, but that is the expectation. So um, we'll see how that goes for the for the Red Wings this week. And of course, uh, March Madness is here and the Athletics College Basketball Crew brings you The Ding You presented by BetMGM. We'll cover all the action both on the court and at the sports book, grabbing insight from the Athletics top college basketball writers and picking the brain of BetMGM's top bookmakers. The next show is Tuesday at 12 p.m. Central on the Daily Dings feed and streaming on the Athletics YouTube channel. See you there.